Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast created to enlighten, inspire, and inform those who work in or depend on the world's most important endeavor, agriculture. Here's your host, Damian Mason. The Business of Agriculture podcast is brought to you by the Georgia Agricultural Commodity Commission for Milk. Did you know it takes seven cups of broccoli to get the same calcium as eight ounces of milk? Greetings. Hey, thanks for joining us here on the Business of Agriculture podcast. It's me, your host, Damian Mason, but you knew that because it said so in the introduction. We got a great show for you today because we're talking about a product of agriculture that you probably don't think a lot of, but you probably enjoy a great deal. At least if you're like me, we're talking about one of the ingredients in one of my favorite products of all time, of course, the Coors Banquet. I'm talking about hops today. We're talking about the production of hops. We're talking to the executive director of Hop Growers of America. Her name is Ann George, and we're talking to a hop producer out of Idaho. Her name is Michelle Gooding. We're going to get right into them, but before we do so, I want to remind you that this episode of the Business of Agriculture is brought to you by my good friends at Harvest Profit. Nick Horeb started this company because he thought there needed to be a better software solution for people in the business of agriculture, a software solution to help you manage your inputs, your outputs, your flows, the, the inventory, your farms, everything you have, the millions of dollars in your operation that need to be managed with a software solution that'll help you be more profitable. Check out harvestprofit.com for your free trial of their software. Okay. And George, executive director of Hop Growers America. Thanks for being here. Good morning, Damien. How are you? I'm amazing. Thanks for being on the podcast. And then Michelle Gooding of Gooding Farms. Thank you for being here. Yeah, good morning. Thanks for having me. Okay, so the the way this came about, dear viewer and listener, and I said viewer because do not forget that this episode, like all of them for the last year, is not just an audio, it's also a video. That's right. Go to the Damian Mason channel on YouTube. Just go to YouTube, type in Damian Mason channel, and you can see as well as hear the Business of Agriculture podcast. So if you're not watching right now, uh, Anne has a, as her backdrop a bunch of hop fields, and then Michelle is sitting in her um, in her office there in Idaho at her farm office. And the way this came about on January 21st, I'm going to be the keynote speaker for a virtual meeting for the Hop Growers of America. I had my conference, my, my uh, setup call with Ann and I said, you know what, can we please do a podcast? Cause this is a fascinating business. So on January 21st, I'm going to be speaking to this organization. And I thought, man, let's share this with all my v- viewers and listeners. All right, Ann, real quickly, give me the quick and dirty on Hop Growers of America. Good morning. So Hop Growers of America has been in existence since about the mid-1950s and has worked over that period of time to help promote the, the different programs that are to benefit Hop Growers in the United States and also internationally. We have a number of different programs, our promotion or um, foreign market development program. We have a best practices food safety program. Uh, we've got a uh, plant protection program whereby we seek internationally harmonized MRLs, maximum residue levels for the plant protection products that are used for hops. And that's very important because we export about 60% of our crop on an annual basis. And then we also participate in the International Hop Growers Organization on behalf of the US hop industry. We do some congressional work and try to represent our our growers in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere on issues that are important to hop growers. So it's it's a pretty uh, robust program, and we've got excellent growers on our board of directors representing the hop industry from across the United States. All right. So uh, this is fascinating to me and all of my beer drinking friends are going to enjoy this as well as all the people in agriculture that are, you know, hog farmers in in Iowa or cranberry producers in uh, Massachusetts are going to be like, wow, I didn't know that much about this. You told me when we had our planning call, some quick numbers about hops. And I Mm -hmm. think it's also important, the very number one rule, tell the listener about hop versus hops. And uh, that way we can start with that. So producers in the Pacific Northwest, where about 98% of the crop is grown in the U.S., refer to hop production in a singular form. It would be just like potatoes. I am a potato grower. I grow potatoes. I am a hop grower. I I grow hops. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about being a hops grower or this is the hops industry. And the Pacific Northwest growers 
really don't utilize that vernacular. It's it's the hop industry. We produce hops. So we do grow, as I mentioned, about 98% of the U.S. crop here in the Pacific Northwest. This has been the, the major production region in the U.S. since the early 1900s. And we produce about 40% of the world's supply, a little over 40% in a normal year. And like I mentioned, about 60% of that is exported to between 60 and 70 different cu customer countries worldwide. Hops are produced in exportable quantities in only about a dozen different countries around the world. And that has to do with the fact that it's a very day length dependent crop. So you will find hops produced around the world in the same basic latitudinal band as you would find wine grapes produced. So the closer to the 45th parallel, the higher the yields. So that, that tends to be where the hop production regions are in the northern and southern hemisphere. Uh, hops, as I mentioned, are very day length dependent. When your lengthening day kicks over to become a shortening day at the summer solstice, the stronger that signal to the plant, the heavier the bloom set. So by being close to that 45th parallel, that is the location on the planet where you see that strongest signal, that strongest daylight signal to the plant as we switch over from lengthening days to shortening days. So once you've hit that bloom set, um, then that determines your yield for that, for that particular crop. And to give you a little bit of an idea of just how dramatic that can be, in the Pacific Northwest, the average yield runs about 1,900 to 2,000 pounds to the acre of dried 10% moisture hop cones. When you go down, let's just say to the San Diego area, we have some growers that produce um, small quantities in that region for local breweries. And a lot of those brewers or a lot of those growers sell to the brewers wet hop cones. And so I think a lot of people are familiar with, with uh, fresh hopped beers that may be available at harvest time. Those are actually the wet 70% moisture hop cones that would be harvested and go into brewing before they're actually dried and baled and go into the normal sales channels that most of our growers utilize. So again, keep in mind about 2000 pounds to the acre of 10% moisture hops at the 45th parallel or close to it, let's just say 35 to 55, versus San Diego, one of my growers uh, indicated that he gets about 400 pounds to the acre wet. So okay. that would be about 100 pounds to the acre dry. There you go. That's what, by the way, I know that uh, I always have to rein in people like Anne because she knows so much about uh, the hops industry that uh, she probably lost a few of our people. Let's go through those numbers. And I want to talk to Michelle. 60% of the United States crop is exported. We have about 60 to 70 countries that are our customers. You right. told me that Germany is the second biggest producer in the world behind the United That's States. Correct. You said that the United States grows about 40% of the globe's mm -hmm. hops are grown right here. And what's interesting is while there's somebody like a friend of mine say, well, isn't Michigan a big producer? As you point that out, there's like 900 acres in all of Michigan compared to the Pacific Northwest, meaning Idaho, Oregon, and Washington, which grow 98% of the U.S. crop. You talked about then the acreage, the, the, the yield per acre. 2,000 pounds per acre is the average up in the Pacific Northwest, and that's of a dry product, meaning of about 10% moisture, as opposed to the specialty niche producer you mentioned in Southern California. They get 400 pounds per acre of wet, which would equate to only 100 acres dry. So you're talking about a, an amazing amount of difference in terms of productivity from where they are to up where Michelle is. Those are the right numbers, right? Correct. And one of the things that we've seen quite a bit of research, because there are southern tier um, farmers who are very interested in producing hops, there's actually quite a large research program in at University of Florida right now where they're attempting to grow hops under grow lights. And that's actually been one of the production regimens in South Africa for many years because that's really been the one historic growing region of the world where we have seen hops produced at closer to 30 degrees latitude as opposed to the 35 to 55 range. And so adding those grow lights has allowed those South African producers to see something closer to a normal crop. And that's what Florida is now experimenting with in their their research. They're doing that indoors or they're trying to do this outdoors under lights? 
um, they're they're doing it both ways, but they do have about a 10 acre hop yard that they have set up under grow lights from what I understand. All right. We've uh, talked for a long while now and we haven't heard from our girl, Michelle. Michelle Gooding, Gooding Farms, Idaho. Welcome to the business of agriculture. Yeah, thank you. And also give me some scoop. You're a 31 year old woman. You are in the business of agriculture background. Yeah, so I grew up on the farm. Um, I'm actually a sixth generation hop grower. So we started growing hops in 1895 uh, in the Willamette Valley, actually in Oregon. And then we moved to Idaho in the mid forties and have been here since. Um, my dad is starting to really enter retirement. Um, and I have two sisters who help run the farm with me alongside our farm manager. And we have a great staff here. So um, yeah, we definitely have been in the business for a while. Um, I'm sure I give you all the numbers dating back from the highs and lows. The hot market historically um, is a little bit like a roller coaster. So uh, we're really fortunate to have weathered some of those pretty significant storms. And um, I don't know, I'm really excited to carry on the family legacy. We Right okay. now we farm about a thousand acres of hops. Okay, that's the big, see, remember, remember my, my ag people, they love production. And I tell them all the time, sometimes they love production more than they, uh, than they, uh, than they do promotion. Uh, they all do. And so I'm like, you love growing it. Remember we got to sell this stuff. So we get into, let's talk about the production. You have 1000 acres of hops. What else do you have on your farming operation? Um, so we are actually implementing a regenerative agriculture approach on our farm. So we have started bringing animals back to the farm. Um, we have about 150 head of cattle. Uh, we've got close to 200 ewes. And then we have about 200 laying hens on our farm. For the person uh, that doesn't know, because a friend of mine in Evanston, Illinois, probably knows this. When you said ewes, you don't mean Y-O-U, you mean... E-W-E-S. Which so means sheep. female sheep. Okay, so you've got 200 sheep, uh, uh, mother sheep, female mm -hmm. sheep used. You got 150 cattle and you got <clears throat> chickens. Tell me about their application. Uh, so what we're trying to do, and we'll probably get into this in a little bit, is we're trying to minimize our costs. So we've grown hops for a long time. We're trying to do it more efficiently. And uh, based on international shipping and MRLs, harmonization, we're basically trying to make it so we can be as flexible with the crop that we grow and also grow it still at a very high quality, but do it maybe at not as expensive as a rate synthetically. Okay, so you're using the animals to do pest control. You're using the animals to do vegetation control. You're using them as a source of revenue, selling calves and eggs. And tell me the whole uh, idea here. Yeah, pretty much. That's everything. You summarize <laughs> well. Um, yeah, and we, we're trying to, basically, we're trying to make it a full circle self-sustaining system. That's really our goal. You know, <clears> we want to, we've got a, a little farmer's market too that we opened last year. So we're trying to, you know, while hops is our bread and butter, that is the thing that pays the bills. Um, we're trying to diversify ourselves um, and, and do that as best as we can. Thousand acres of hops. What else do you have at Gooding Farms? Um, so we've got about 300 acres of pasture and then we do some row cropping uh, about 50 acres of that, not tons of that. Uh, when the hop market was very bad, uh, that's actually how my dad got through everything he had a few acres of hops but he predominantly row crop to to make everything make ends meet okay so th this is not a small operation you and two of your siblings as well as your father who's phasing out uh just for the fun of it because people are my my midwestern people are saying wait a minute a thousand acres of corn and soybeans that's still I, I have a job in town and my wife works because that's not enough for all of us but a thousand acres of hops obviously is a much different revenue stream would you mind telling me like in a year like 2020 what does a revenue picture look like for 1000 acres of hops well 2020 there's a little asterisk you know planted there um i would say next to it but for us, we're, you know, as far as budget wise, we're, we're operating on about a 10 to $11 million budget is really what we're doing. And, um, you know, you really hope that you can have your ends meet and things will work out good. That's part of farming. Um, and we saw some challenges this year with weather as well as COVID um, that we were down, we were down 
um, I would say about 10% uh, versus projected, but then we were able to make ends somewhat meet um, thanks to Anne's hard work with the CFAP too. Um, so hops were included in that. And then also uh, September 9th, there was a like eight or 10 hour, 30 to 50 mile an hour windstorm um, that Idaho endured. So we have some insurance claims related to that because we self-insure our crop. Oh, you self-insure. Okay, so real quickly for the listener or viewer that doesn't know, CFAP2 meant Coronavirus Food Assistance Program, and there was monies thrown at agriculture, uh, you know, right or wrong, but there was money thrown at a lot of different things through all of the federal uh, stimulus and whatnot in 2020. So, dear listener, if you're wondering what she's talking about, uh, the federal government gave money to farmers, and, you know, you can disagree with that as well you may, but remember, it's because we need to keep these people in business so that we have food and beverage. 10 to $11 million in a normal year. And then again, my, uh, my friends in Indiana are saying, good God, $10 million off of a thousand acres. Of course, you've also got the regenerative stuff going with the livestock, et cetera, et cetera, which is starting to, I'm sure, ramp up. You got a high cost business. Um, yes. and, and Ann talked a little bit about this. So let's go back to Ann. Tell me about some of the expenses that your members in the Hop Growers of America First off, it's labor intensive, right? Is that the first one, the biggest expense for these uh, farmers? Yes, labor intensive. So labor costs are very high. The next category would probably be plant protection. It's a very long season crop. The hop rhizome system or rootstock is a perennial, but the big vines that you see behind me uh, going up to an 18 foot trellis are annual. And those begin to emerge in March, uh, generally the crop bearing vines would emerge along about mid-April. And so it's full on plant protection from that point in time until harvest in September through early October. Let's get this so, real quick, real quickly. Remember we got folks that we got, we try to always be educational here on the business of agriculture. Right. Um, so somebody that says I'm a little bit familiar, they're essentially, and if you're not able to watch, but you're listening, a hop field looks like an overgrown vineyard in some regards, yes. right? You've got this trellis yeah. system, but what you just said was the roots, the rhizomes for those of you that are not plant, uh, and botany type people, that's the thing that's in the ground. And then the right. vine comes off of that. You said one of them is a perennial, which means it's there every year. And then the part that goes up the trellis is an annual. That's the part that gets harvested every year, correct? Correct. And that whole entire vine, and it is a vine, not a vine, uh, due to the the uh, structure of it. Oh, spell, um, spell it, spell it, because people are saying, what? It's B as in boy, vine, B-I-N-E. So that that entire vine, that 18 plus foot long piece of plant that comes up out of the soil every year is cut down at harvest. And then generally the, the most common harvesting facility for hop industry in the Pacific Northwest is a stationary picking machine. So that entire vine is hauled into a stationary picking machine where all of this, the cones and cones, which are the flowers, and all of these vines are female. Uh, the crop is born on the female plant. So if we end up with male plants in the field through random pollination and seed drop, those are roged out. So we don't want seeds in the cones that increases weight and decreases the quality of, of the cones or the flowers of the plant. And the cone or the flower is the crop that we're growing. So the leaves and the, the Cones are stripped from those big vines and then separated so that the ultimate crop that we're marketing is 99.9% .9 pure hop cones without any stems or leaves uh, in, in that. Mm -hmm. so, so within that, growing that 18 to 20 foot long vine every year, um, first of all, you've got the trellis structure. So for a grower to go to a new piece of ground and establish a hop field, which would include building the trellis, establishing the drip irrigation system, the pumping station, and so on, and then buying the planting stock, because these are either planted from other rhizomes or from potted plants that come from a virus-free propagation program. They are not planted from seeds. You plant seeds, you get 50% males, roughly. We don't right. want males. We only want females. So they're vegetatively propagated plants. So just the mere establishment of a hop yard is uh, an eight to $10,000 an acre venture. 
Not counting, and, the pri- not counting the price of land and with that. Not include- counting the price of land and not counting the production costs for that first year of production on that. That's just buying the poles, buying the wire, the labor to put the structure up, buying the rhizomes, planting them or the potted plants and setting up the irrigation system. Okay, so, so you've eight got to ten grand, eight to 10 grand per right. acre just to get, to get just, the thing rolling. And that does not right. count any of your return on labor, nor does it count any of your cost of, no. uh, of acre of the actual land. Okay. No. And it also doesn't include your harvesting facility. And so every one of these growers, so to put this in perspective, Michelle mentioned they have a thousand acres of hops. Michelle is a spot on average sized hop grower in the Pacific Northwest. Our average hop grower, and there are about 80 hop growers in the Pacific Northwest, Oregon, Washington, and Idaho, the average hop grower is a thousand acres. We've got them running basically from 500 acres up to about 4,000 acres of hops. And they, you know, are obviously diversified with some other crops as well. So with this hop production unit has to have a harvesting facility. So, you know, many of your listeners may be familiar with the cost of a new grain combine, and those certainly aren't cheap anymore. But Michelle not only has to have a stationary combine or picking machine, but then she also has to have a kiln because, as we mentioned earlier in the broadcast, we're going to dry all these cones from 70% moisture down to 10% moisture. And then she has to have a baling system. We, we then compress those dried hop cones into a 200-pound bale and wrap those with, with a burlap or with a polycloth burlap. And then that's how they leave Michelle's farm to go to the, the um, cold storage facility. All of these hops are then stored at 30 degrees or less uh, Fahrenheit until they go into processing into pellets or extract. And then that end product, the pellets extract or other downstream products are also held in cold storage. So there's a lot of expense in cold storage, warehousing, and then just the picking facility for an average hop farm if you had to go in and rebuild a picking facility today from scratch, you would be looking at probably $10 million, uh, five, five to $10 million. And you use that facility for 30 to 45 days a year. Okay. You know, a, a now, small picking facility for our Pacific Northwest growers would be a five to $6 million investment. So. All right. Now, uh, Michelle, you just gave a bunch of people sticker shock and just gave a bunch of people sticker shock. So let's talk a little bit about what happens there at Gooding Farms. Uh, you're the average Pacific Northwest size. She says there's 80 producers in those three states averaging 1,000 acres. We have 80,000 acres. Uh, we're all, all of us that love beer are dependent on those 80,000 acres. We're depending on people like you. You Six, have 60,000 acres, Damien, 60,000 oh. acres in the U.S. OK, about 60,000 in, in, in all of the U.S.? In all the U.S. OK, and obviously most all of that, principally 98 percent of that is in the Northwest, Pacific Northwest. Yes. OK, 60,000 acres. Um, you've got this massive amount of stuff going on. So let's start in the spring. Um, kind of just walk me through this, because I, I think everybody wants to know what happens. Start with uh, start with your season. Yeah, so we'll just start in January. That's, all right. That's- got banking taxes right now and um, we are doing a lot of maintenance. Uh, it Historically in the past few years we've been putting up new trellis so what Ann was talking about um, if the weather cooperated um, and then we'll roll into the end of January, February we will be digging roots so we'll dig those rhizomes if we're going to self-propagate fields for new acres. I mean you are you're trying to expand acres so the new trellises and the rhizome would be we're going to go put in 50 more acres or something right? Yeah or rotate out some old fields. I mean the thing is this trellis is a huge investment but it lasts for a significant amount of time so we've got some old fields you know, we're rotating out some trellis doing some repairs and maintenance um, you know, improving them, maybe shifting the field three feet one way or something like that. Um, so that all happens in the spring. Um, we also, in the springtime, uh, we use the H2A program. So our workers will arrive in February and we will be essentially planting new fields. Uh, we will start to, as the hops begin to emerge, we will start to potentially prune them depending on the variety. Um, we'll plant cover crops. Uh, that's something that a lot of farms do is plant cover crops in the springtime, depending, you know, on the, the weather, very weather dependent. And then we will start to roll into the busy season. So April, April through, I would say the end of September 
it's pedal to the metal. Um, you're really trying to time these things uh, to where you're, you, you know, you put your string in. So you, you restring every year, you're stringing that 18 foot hop bind every single year. And that's a huge labor investment because it, it's something that's not automated and it's done by hand. And um, that's a, they're working on, on automating that potentially. But that happens during what time of year, Michelle? Uh, typically that's April. Okay. So in April, what you're saying is you said restringing. So we've got this trellis system. Are we talking about taking the bind and, and attaching it to that string so it can climb? Is that what's happening? So that's called training. So you have to have a string there first to train. And then hops have kind of a little prickle similar to a raspberry. So when you train them, the, that prickle um, essentially sticks to the twine fairly well. Um, and then they'll start to grow. So for most people that probably don't know, the majority of U.S. hops are grown, I would say, in the Yakima Valley. So down here in southwest Idaho, we're a little bit more south. So we have to be very cognizant of the timing of when we train things because hops grow based on day length. And yeah. that's why they do really well, right? In the Pacific Northwest, we've got these long summer days. So what we're trying to do is time it so that if maybe we get a cold snap in June, it's not thinking, oh crap, I'm, I'm near harvest. I got a bloom right now. The days are, you know, they're getting shorter. So that's something that we have to be really careful about. Um, and we train and then it's really simple. You, you know, you just grow them, right? <laughs> so you, you just spray, you fertilize water. Um, and that's spraying is, as Ann mentioned, that is a very significant cost for growers. Um, we fight two spotted spider mites, downy and powdery mildew are, I would say, our main three things that we combat with spraying. And you spray that aerially or are you spraying that because you got a 20 foot tall plant? Are you going over that with a aerial application of a crop duster? So it kind of depends. Um, it depends on the label, I would say, first of all. And then second of all, you're really wanting coverage. So if you're spraying a two spotted spider mite, you like you want to really get that 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 bind covered, right? So it's, we use, uh, a lot of people will use uh, Rear's Air Blast Sprayer, similar to that they use in tree fruit, um, okay. or there's like the electrostatic versions. Um, so typically it's sprayed from the ground up. Okay. And then uh, they will do foliar applications through the airplanes. Um, I think a lot of people are getting more kind of into that, um, but the other, they haven't really tried, I don't think any drone anything like that. Okay. So wait a minute. Now, uh, we, we recognize all, all manner of agriculture. You just talked about you know, mites and some things and fungi and funguses that you're, you, you deal with and the need to spray. Can you grow hops organically? I assume you can, but I'm sure the yield cut has to be significant based on what you described. Maybe Ann can take that one. Yeah. Ann. So on average, I would guess that the organic production yield is about 60 to 70 percent of a conventional yield okay. and of course as we all know um, organic does not mean that it has not been treated with pesticides it's just treated with organically approved pesticides so instead of being able to use some of the conventional products that might have a longer residual where we could potentially spray every 14 to 21 days with an organic system, of course, you're having to go in and spray maybe every three to five days yeah. and continue to stay on top of those pests. And one of the downsides of having to spray more often with hops is the fact that as you can, as you can manage, or excuse me, as you can imagine with, an, with a rears type air blast sprayer, there's a lot of air damage to the plant. And so every time you go through the field and have to use an air blast application, you're going to damage part of the crop. So that's also part of what takes that yield down on an organic system. But we do have a very robust organic production sector of our industry. Uh, it's not huge, but it's, it is growing. And I think we do have customers who are starting to appreciate the um, the additional costs associated with organic production and are willing 
to pay for that if indeed that's the type of, of product that they want. Fantastic. So real quickly, and we're going to go back to Michelle. I love this discussion. And yes, this is going to be a longer episode of the Business of Agriculture because it is amazing coverage. Before we ask the next couple of questions of Ann George, I want to remind you that this episode of the Business of Agriculture is brought to you by my good friends at Harvest Profit. Harvest Profit is a Fargo-based software company, but it doesn't matter where they are because they can serve you anywhere. They're in 22 states. Growers, agricultural enterprises in like 24 states and four provinces are using Harvest Profit. Go to harvestprofit.com for your free 14-day trial. Uh, First off, dear listener, viewer, uh, you heard something very valuable right there. Just because something is labeled organic or says it's organic does not mean that it does not use organically approved pesticides and uh, herbicides. You can still use chemicals in organic production. You also heard that we're going through there a lot more uh, when, when we grow them organically because you don't have the residual of the products used, and then you are damaging the plant more. About one third uh, less yield on organic operation. How many acres do you suppose of the 60,000 acres in the United States are organic hops? I would guess roughly a thousand. Okay. So a, a, a few percent. Okay. Michelle, take me to summer. So we're, we're doing a lot of work in the spring. We got a lot of labors. You mentioned the H2A program for a person that doesn't understand that. That is So it's a worker visa program that allows them to come and fill essentially jobs that can't be filled by domestic workers here in the United States. So we advertise, you know, we try to get these jobs filled and try to get the work done. But to be totally honest, people don't really want to work on the farm anymore. So um, especially out in Parma. Um, that's not where your epicenter of, of people is. So yeah. um, the H2A program has been an investment for us. Um, it's not cheap. How much do, how much speaking of cheap, you know, there's a lot of people that are, uh, think it's just terrible that we're out here in agriculture where uh, they think it's the old plantocracy system. And it's really not because I can speak from experience that a lot of the farm workers I know in the dairy sector, they do quite well. Grant, they put in long hours, but they get housing in like 14 bucks an hour to start. What are your people making? Uh, So pretty similar to that. So we have to provide housing and transportation for them. And then um, we are paying it. I think they have it. I think the wage is still locked for right now. Um, But like last year, it was like 1362 in Idaho. Um, And then we actually farm some in Eastern Oregon as well. So over in in Oregon, they were getting like, like 15 something. Okay. So, so these workers are getting thirteen sixty to fifteen dollars an hour plus housing and transportation, and then they are working quite a bit because it's hard work. And take me to then late summer fall when it comes the 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 bounty. We're gonna we're gonna take these. What happens then? Yeah. So so harvest harvest is definitely probably my favorite and least favorite time of year simultaneously. Um, so I run our dryer. So I oversee that, um, as part of harvest along, you know, just like other farms, people wear a lot of hats. Um, but basically what happens is you, you know, you talked about the 18 foot tall vines. So on our farm, they go through and they cut the bottoms mechanically with like, you could think of it a bit like scissor hands on the front of a tractor. And then as they go through and they cut the tops, um, directly from the wire up in 18 feet, they fall into a truck um, that has kind of like a, a big side bed. You've seen these dump beds, things like that. It's kind of similar to that. And then they are transported to our stationary harvesting facility, which where each vine is hung upside down and then goes through. We have what are called Donhauer machines, uh, which is you know pretty standard. There's some other German types of machines from that point, they are sorted from the leaves and stems. And I'm making this sound really simple. It's a lot more complicated. Than that. <laughs> that's, that's, that's like so much like, oh, well, we run the com- we run the combine through there and we get soybeans like, oh, that's all there is to it. I'm like, well, actually, there's a hell of a lot more to it. But you know what? We'll just uh, we'll just stick with that. I got you. So they go through these, you know, you're taking this 18 foot thing that's in a hopper truck uh, into your stationary what does it call it? The Donhauer machine is a picking facility, a, a picking yeah. machine, essentially. So it's probably, it's the cotton gin, it's the combine, it's an amazing piece of equipment and it separates all that stuff, right? Yes. And, and it's, it's really amazing. If you ever, you know, if you ever wanted to see anything like that, we have some, I think on our video on our website, we have some footage of it. And I, I don't know, Anne might have some on the USA Hops website too. Um, Washington Hop Commission as well. Um, it's really amazing. It's, it's just the engineering. And I mean, a lot of these were developed in the sixties. Um, the, the 
basic, you know, engineering of it. So we've modernized it some, but it's, it's pretty neat. It's really something to see. Yeah, but okay. from the picker is what we call them, the picker. They are taken to uh, the dryer via uh, conveyor belts um, and are dried, depending on the farm, from, I would say, six to 14 hours. Um, the art of drying is something that is, is, I feel like, can really make or break the farm um, because you have to essentially, you know, you're, you're targeting that eight and a half to 10 and a half or eight to 10 mark of moisture. And you're, you know, maybe they're coming in at 75% moisture. Yeah. So you have to really manage fans and heat. And it's, it's really a, a complex thing. And from there they get bailed and that way we're taking this. Now it's a dried product and then we're bailing it just like a bale of hay. But uh, does that happen at your place or do they go somewhere else? So it happens at our place. I will back you up though. There's a very important step in between the dryer and the baler, and that is cooling. Cooling uh -huh. the pile. So basically, you know, just similar to hay, if you're bailing wet bales, you can have fires. Hops are, are similar sense in that way, just because of the oil complexity that the cones have within them. And Cooling is something that, you know, we try to cool between, I would say, 18 and 24 hours is normally standard on our farm, on our farm. But in order to do that, you need space, right? So you've got huge, essentially, piles of hops that are just sitting there that are cooling and, and homogenizing because the room is different. It's not, you know, it's not a German style where it's a continuous dryer. So you've maybe got a little bit of water spots here, or some drier spots here, and and that helps even them out to make the. So are we doing safe. that? Are we doing that outside on a slab of concrete? Are we doing that in a barn? That's in the barn. Okay. The so very safe barn. <laughs> a very big barn, and we're using a payloader to turn the pile. To, you know, because you know we've all we've all eaten you know eat around the edge because it's cooler there. Is that what we're doing? Are we just? Is that what happening? Um. So for us, we don't we don't disturb them once they're in the pile until we go to bail them. We let them just because they are such a delicate flower, uh, we really try to maintain the integrity of the cone. So we just let them cool and then we scoop them and place them um, essentially in like a, it's kind of like a big hole in the floor and they go up conveyors and into the bale box. Okay. They get put into a bale. Bale is how big? Um, on our farm, we're the standard American bale, which is 200 pounds. 200 pound bale from there they go to, uh, and then, and if you're watching this and I encourage you to watch this one because uh, Anne has changed her backdrop a couple of times. She's now showing us a bale. It looks like it's a great big uh, rectangle in a burlap uh, sort of uh, wrapping. Then they go from there to a, pro a further processor that pelletizes them. Is that right? Yeah. Typically then at that point they are taken to cold storage <laughs> And then the, the processor will then take them to pellets. And it, there is one stage further, they can go into extract as well. So um, that's kind of the alpha aroma difference there. And the average brewer, whether it's Anheuser-Busch or uh, Joe, Joe and, and Bob's um, microbrew down the street, they get this product typically as a pellet because it's more stable. It's easier for them to handle. Am I right? Craft beer is definitely committed to the pellet um, and the Anheuser-Busch as well, as well as, you know, a lot of brewers. It's predominantly how hops are used, um, but extract has been used for a very long time and would probably know how long they've been using extract. Oh, Anne doesn't need to tell us that necessarily. What she needs to tell us is, uh, more importantly, they're not all the same hops. You know, my favorite beer of all time, Coors Banquet, got it in the kegerator. Uh, also, I like a microbrew once in a while. I like an IPA. I like a Christmas ale. Different hops, along with other things, change the flavor. So uh, is that what I'm hearing? That's correct. And essentially, all of the different hop varieties fall within two classes. We'll refer to them either as aroma hops which tend to be lower in alpha acid content, which is the bittering substance that gives beer its base bittering flavor or bitter flavor. And then the bitter or alpha hops, and those are grown specifically for the production of that alpha acid. So your average alpha acid hop would be producing something in the range of 16 to 20% alpha content, which goes back to Michelle's comment about making sure that those bales are dry because you have not only a compacted crop like you would with a bale of hay, but now you add 
15 to 20% oil and resin to that crop. And then that really increases the flammability. So we're very careful about the drying of these, um, these cones because of the fact that not only can they self heat from moisture, but once that starts, you've got a very flammable product that's got up to 20% oils and resins in its content. So within those two classes of hops, we probably produce, um, I would say that our, our top 10 varieties make up about 50 to 60% of our acreage, but overall we produce over 60 different varieties in the US. And there's over a hundred different varieties worldwide. Every one of those varieties has its own unique flavor profile and aroma profile. So, <clears throat> so let's talk yes, about you've got quite a bit of variability. We are, after all, the business of agriculture. Let's talk about some business things here. And again, I, I know, dear listener and viewer, this is a longer episode than usual, but it's the best subject I, I have covered in a while here. I've got to tell you, man, because, you know, if you like a good cold beer at the end of the day, this is our episode. Uh, and I should also remind you, you know, I've been saying it for years. If you eat it, drink it or smoke it, agriculture produced it. Right. So we're talking about the drink side of agriculture. If you um, if you want to change out a field. Um, this is a long-term thing, you know, putting those rhizomes in the ground, et cetera. So I'm assuming, uh, Michelle, you've got a contract and a brewery um, or a brokerage says you're going to get paid to grow this stuff. It's not just like, hey, we decide we just go ahead and throw this kind of hops out there. And, and um, what do you think? Anybody want it? Tell me how the whole business part of it works. Yeah. So contracting is something that we've always encouraged with brewers. Um Obviously, there's things like COVID in 2020 that kind of throw curveballs into the whole business of everyone. Um, but historically, what we've done on our farm is we try to be in a more heavily contracted position. So you can grow hops on the open market. Um, that's just something that uh, is a little bit riskier. And we're a little bit more conservative, I would say, on our farm. So we try to be um, fully contracted every year. Um, and if, you know, something does better than normally averaged, then that's great. And we've got some extras. Um, but it also can be a little bit complicated because there are proprietary varieties. Um, so that's just a little thing that I'll throw in there without going too far down that rabbit hole. Um, but for us, I would say our average contracts are two to anywhere from two to four years. Um, and my sister, Diane, that's really her bread and butter on our farm. She manages all the sales and has done so for better part of a decade now. And what are you, what's your, hey, what's your role? My role, I'm the COO. So okay. I do all the stuff Diane doesn't want to pretty much. All right. So you're, you're about the production and the operation and all the moving parts. She's about the money and the biz, right? Then you got third yeah, sibling. What's with, what's the, what's the third sibling's role? So our youngest sister, Andrea, just came back and she is managing more on the marketing side right now. Hmm. And she's kind of overseeing our new endeavor with our farm stand. Ah, good deal. All right. So how many different varieties do you grow? Uh, so we grow 14 different varieties on our farm. And your customers are? Um, so we have, I would say, a mix. So we, we do some small dealers. Uh, you know, you're looking at people that are maybe in Canada or uh, Montana, we use all different sizes. So you got small, mid, and large dealers. Large dealers, you're looking at Hop Steiner uh, or S. Steiner. Um, you're looking at Barth Haas Group and uh, Yakima Chief uh, Ranches. I would say. But, are, but none, none of your stuff goes directly with a contract to, um, a, a, you know, Miller Brewing or something like this. No. Uh, we do have some direct contracts, so we work closely with Founders Brewing um, out of Michigan, and then we also work with Anheuser Busch. Okay, got it. And then we do smaller stuff too and talked about the wet hops. So we'll do wet hops with our local breweries near Boise. And then um, we'll do, you know, some direct contracts with those guys as well. All right. So we've been on a while. We've covered a lot of ground and there's probably a couple things I'm missing. And what thing am I missing that, uh, that somebody needs to know that we didn't talk about? Well, I'll just throw out a few fun facts here. And so it. let's go. Let's go back. First, we were talking a little bit about the economics. So about every five years, we do uh, an enterprise budget with Washington State University. Just last week, I got the document that we created with input from our Hop Girls of America Board of Directors in 2020. And according to that particular cost study, the current 
total cost of producing hops in the Pacific Northwest is a little over $13,000 an acre. Now, that's an annual operating cost. That not only includes your cash costs, however, that does also include your um, amortization of your land and your, your plant and equipment. So, so that is kind of the figure that our growers need to be looking at long-term to be able to have a successful operation. On a short-term basis, they may be able to take a little lower price or take different prices on their different varieties because you need to make sure you have a very uh, robust mix of varieties, as Michelle said, because you don't wanna be growing the entire farm on one with one variety that has to be harvested on September 10th. You need right. to start harvest the last <laughs> week of, of August and go through the first week of October. So you need a, a variable group of maturities. So anyway, uh, our growers are going to be keying in on that figure. And again, going back to this, what I mentioned earlier with an average yield of 2000 pounds to the acre, that gives you a pretty uh, a good idea of what our growers need to look at as a break-even cost for long-term success in this industry. Most of our growers are third to seventh generation. And you know, we talked about the $6 million investment in a new picking machine. Some of our bigger operations are looking at more like 12 to $20 million for an investment in their, in their harvesting facilities. And you can't do that overnight. So most of our growers are using, as, Di as uh, Michelle mentioned, they're using picking facilities that originally were built in the 1960s. And over the years, they've, you know, they've replaced this piece in one year and another year they've upgraded that piece. And a year later, they might do a piece over in the back. And so there's a continual improvement of, of these facilities. And, you know, you really oftentimes don't get a new one unless something catastrophic happens and you burn down the old one. Mm. So it's, it, you know, unfortunately, that's just the reality of the business. The um, going back to talking a little bit about uh, some of Michelle's discussion of our spring activities. I think one fun fact is that we talked about the twining, the putting of the twine in the ground every year and tying it to the trellis at 18 feet tall. So just doing a really quick calculation on 60,000 acres of hops, let's just say on average, there are three strings per hill, 889 hills per acre. And if you do the math on that, that works out to about almost 620,000 miles of core COIR twine, which is made from coconut husks, or some growers use a paper twine, basically a twisted craft paper twine. So we're putting in about 620,000 miles of twine each year. And as Michelle mentioned, that's all done by hand. It's tied to the trellis at the top by hand. It's punched into the ground, into the hill by hand. So you said a hundred and how many, how many miles just per acre? Well, I, I didn't actually break it down per acre. Okay, right. but, I, I but you're did. talking about a hell of a lot of miles of, of the twine per acre. And by the way, how many employees during your busy season, Michelle, how many employees are out there covering that thousand acres? For us, we cap out typically at around 120. 120, that's mm -hmm. labor. And then mm -hmm. is that also include, I'm sure you've got a couple of just people that are there year round because keeping the machines going, et cetera. Then what's your full-time? Uh, full-time people, we have about 30. 30 full-time people and then 120 laborers? Yeah, total. So you got 150 people, not to not mentioning the office staff, which is you, your your money hungry sister, and then the little one, which let's face it, youngest usually don't do anything. I mean, let's face it, you know, <laughs> I'm kidding. Of course, I'm the youngest. I did everything. But um, so 120 workers, 30 people that are there year round. You got a lot of stuff going on. Can I ask you a question, Michelle? Did you make money last year? Did you break even or did you lose money as a at, at Gooding Farms? Well, so there's a few ways to look at it. I would say everything, whole picture, we broke even. If you took away the assistance, uh, we lost money. Yeah. If you if it hadn't been for CFAP too, you'd have lost money. The PPP and um, the insurance claim that we're working through right now, um, I mean, it it was a rough year. It was really hard. How's 2021 look for you? It looks good. I think we are in a good position on the sales side. Diane's done a good job there. And regenerative ag is starting to show the, the perks there. So we're pretty excited about that. 
It's good. Eternal optimism. That's why you're in the business of agriculture. Last thought then, uh, Anne, anything that we need? First off, if somebody wants to learn more about this than they learned on our podcast, they can go to your website. And that is? USAHops.org. And we do have videos. We have just a wealth of information on the website for people who are interested in learning more about hops. I, I think this is just a neat, neat thing for me. And uh, if they want to find out more about Gooding Farms there and what is it, Parma, Idaho? Yep, Parma. Okay, uh, if we want to, if we want to, what's that? Goodingfarms.com. Goodingfarms.com. And, you know, back when uh, I used to travel for my business, uh, which I think is going to happen again come summer, uh, I work in Idaho sometimes, so I'm intrigued. Uh, Maybe we'll have to swing by and see what's going on there. So you got hopsusa.org or goodingfarms.com. usahops.org usahops.org or goodingfarms.com this has been a fascinating topic I really enjoy it I will remind everybody that uh, if you are in the hop hops industry and you are a hops a hop grower please (laughs) please consider uh, checking us out on January 21st I'm going to be the keynote speaker and I think I'm kicking off the entire online conference am I not you're going to be our Thursday morning keynote to kick off that day. Um, thanks to COVID, you would have been kicking off the whole conference, but we took heart on our attendees and we've spread it over five days instead of a couple so that we don't have to have 12 hours of Zoom programming each day. That's and so you're actually going to be on the third day of the conference. Okay. So, so I'll be on Thursday, the January 21st in the morning. And I would like you to be there. I, I, I would love for you to hear my message. I'll be talking about big picture business of agriculture stuff, trends, outlook, uh, consumer issues, and other items that are impacting the industry of uh, food, fuel, and fiber. Michelle, Ann, you're awesome. I uh, I got to tell my listeners real quickly that this episode was brought to you by Harvest Profit. Go to harvestprofit.com for a software solution that will make your agricultural enterprise more profitable. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. You know what? I think I speak for everybody that's just enjoyed this podcast. All this talk about hops made me thirsty for a Coors banquet. All right. Thanks for being here. Until next time, it's the business of agriculture. The Business of Agriculture podcast is brought to you by the Georgia Agricultural Commodity Commission for Milk, reminding you that energy drinks are chock full of caffeine and sodium, soft drinks and juices are loaded with sugar. What are you feeding your family? Make it milk. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Business of Agriculture, please share it with your network. Be sure to connect with Damien on LinkedIn, like his Facebook fan page, and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. For speaking inquiries or to purchase Damien's books, Food Fear, or Do Business Better, go to DamienMason.com.